Hi, everyone. Welcome to the October 1st, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Bemus Mopum. We have a map. It's from a uh, Catholic friend, so they got that Latin joke. Uh, it, it came down to the wire, but the Independent Redistricting Commission agreed on a congressional map mere minutes before its self-imposed midnight deadline on Tuesday night. The new map is very similar to the third staff map that we saw just a few weeks ago, creating a very competitive 8th district north of the city, but keeping the current seven incumbents relatively safe. The map now needs to be approved by the Colorado Supreme Court, where arguments from community groups claiming the map does not keep some communities of interest together, will be waiting for it. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, it, it wasn't a big dramatic, oh my gosh, everything has changed. It's really just changed for the parts of north of Denver. But at least we have a map and the system seemed to work. What do you think? Well, we still have time for plenty of drama in front of the Colorado Supreme Court as they look over the map and hear the complaints from Latino groups that are concerned that they are definitely a com community of interest that's been split. We also, of course, will then have the legislative redistricting all the way down to city council redistricting. So don't get optimistic that we're not going to be talking about this for a while. I'm still disappointed. I'll admit it. And Michael can tell me I'm shallow because <laughs> Joe Neguse and Lauren Boebert will, won't be in the same district, which would have been really fun. But we're going to have in the 8th some competitive races. Assuming it looks the way it is, that could be a really, really interesting one to watch. I think really it's an impossible task to keep communities of interest together unless, I said it before, you'd have to have flagpole annexation to make it balance out with the different parts of Colorado, the rural, the urban, the ethnic, the non-ethnic. It's suburban. It's just tough. There's so many different definitions of communities of interest. You heard from cities, counties, uh, ethnicities, uh, uh, political uh, traditions within an organization, between in a, in a community. Uh, but uh, as uh, segued by our friend Patty, Michael Fields joins us. Michael, uh, the executive director at Colorado State Rising Action. Uh, when it's all said and done, we have a very competitive 8th district, but everyone else seems like it's second verse, same as the first. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. It's a really good map for incumbents, um, that they should all be able to win re-election. Uh, and then the 8th Congressional will be a kind of a, a national spotlight uh, because it is a, a seat that went, um, you know, two points for Trump in 2016, two less than two points for Governor Polis in 2018. I mean, it is as competitive as a district as you're going to find in the country. And when uh, Republicans only need a handful of seats nationally in order to take the House back next year, um, this is going to be a, a huge battleground. I think the thing with this seat is going to be it is likely to flip back and forth year to year, given the waves that will happen in national elections. So both I think both Republicans and Democrats are looking at the eighth and saying, who do we pick that might have more longevity, could win it now, continue to win? But I think it, overall, it's a victory for the process. Um, I think this is much better than legislators uh, deciding to, ch to choose maps. It was an 11 to 1 vote. And so you had uh, three Democrats uh, and all the unaffiliated, all the Republicans voting in favor of it. I'm thinking maybe we should put this committee in charge of more of the state, uh, you know, given the fact that they were able to come to consensus. And so I think, you know, victory for the process. We'll see what the Supreme Court does. I think they'll uphold it. Uh, and this will be our map for the next decade. Uh, brought it in on budget and on deadline. Uh, Ian Thomas Tafoya joins us, uh, uh, activist and community builder here in Colorado. Uh, in in the eighth district, we have a forty percent of Hispanic uh, voting, uh, at least the registered voter. So that, that's going to be significant. I think probably the biggest one that we've had so far. Uh, the map does lose that southern district, which was I think the second map, which um, had a lot of things going for it, but it didn't end up at the finish. 
finish line. Uh, will the 8th District be uh, a, a, uh, a political force for uh, Hispanics in Colorado? I definitely think that's probably true for Latinos that live in northern Colorado. Whether they'll be a Republican or Democrat, I think, remains to be seen. I, you know, to say that we're a monolith and that we vote completely in one party is simply not true. My work has brought me to Greeley, Colorado, but it's also brought me to Evans, Colorado, right? Literally not talked about as much, but there's a Latina city councilwoman there, right? And so we are emerging in that politics. I'm excited for Commerce City to have a new opportunity, to have a leader that really wants to protect them, perhaps fight for environmental justice. You know, in regards to District 3, um, to see all of Pueblo finally in one map, I think is a good thing. I think Pueblo, Steamboat, and the San Luis Valley maybe makes this a little bit more competitive than it would have been, um, especially if Yolanda Bobert uh, is up against somebody from that area. Now, will it forever be a Republican stronghold, a Democratic stronghold? It's hard to say, especially when you see people who are moving out of the front range and across the city and as soon as you, or across the state, and as soon as we get rural broadband legitimately and healthcare prices down, I think you're going to see a great mixing of people across the state. That's a great point. Rounding up the panel remotely, Benta Berkland, reporter with Colorado Public Radio. And Benta, I just need to start out with a compliment. You and your colleagues at Colorado Public Radio did a fantastic job covering this. If uh, any of you are looking for a deep dive on redistricting, I highly recommend the Purplish podcast. Uh, they've done a great job with it, and Benta has been front and center. So, Benta, uh, you've been covering this. You were uh, from the very beginning there on Tuesday night, seen it uh, at least not live in person because it was all Zoom, but you know, being a part of it. Uh, what do we need to know? What are the details that we should know about what's uh, gone, gone down here for uh, the new map? I mean, I think overall from the people I've talked to who supported this new process for drawing the congressional lines, they were happy with how the process turned out and all the p- public input. And we had 5,000 comments. They had more than 40 public hearings, and it's much different than how most states still do congressional redistricting, where you have state lawmakers drawing the lines. I think if this map holds up in the end, like people have mentioned, it's not a huge divergence from what we currently have. We have heard some hand-wringing from Democrats that we could potentially have a state that sends four Republicans and four Democrats to Congress. And I think especially when you have a lot of um, other states and Republican-held legislatures having more flexibility for how they want to draw their lines and um, have more safe Republican districts. That may something be something we see play out nationally. As Michael said, control of the House is at stake, and so every seat is going to matter. So I think Colorado is once again in the 2022 midterms going to be a focus nationally for how especially the 8th PD race uh, plays out. I think you're right. We didn't get a whole lot of attention on the last general election, but I think the the focus will be back, especially with uh, fairly close uh, margins in Congress. Next topic, as businesses across the country began to enforce vaccine mandates, things are getting litigious here in Denver. Earlier this week, a lawsuit brought by seven Denver police officers claiming that the vaccine mandate for public service workers was a violation of rights was dismissed. However, seven construction trade associations filed a lawsuit on Thursday claiming the city cannot force private companies to enforce the vaccine mandate. Uh, Michael, it seems like this is going to be the, the first of probably several fights we're going to see on this. But the, going from a case dismissed for public uh, service workers and then private workers, we're getting, now we're seeing a kind of breakdown along lines. How do you think this is going to go? 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting legal questions here and looking at every different category, right? So you have city workers, can they, do you have, uh, you know, private uh, corporations deciding how they want to deal with it? And then do you have the government coming in and telling private companies what they do? And I think they're all uh, very different. If you look at polling, even people's opinions about this differ based on what job it is. You know, police officers, very high that they should uh, have to have the vaccine, uh, but people that don't work with the public, it's it's a lot lower. And so, um, you know, the public split on this, I think court will end up very split across the country on all these different scenarios. And so how it ends up coming out, I don't know. But uh, I think, you know, one thing that, that has happened is a lot more people have gotten vaccinated that are city employees. For example, Denver's uh, well over 90 percent right now. Um, and, you know, but you do have a shortage of, of workforce in certain areas and especially in public safety right now. And so uh, it'll be interested to see how these come out, given the fact that there's differing opinions. Uh, I think, you know, people should get vaccinated. Um, but you also have these religious exemptions and which ones are approved or not. And so I think the courts are going to be full of these for a long period of time. It seems that there's going to be one industry, though, that's going to be very pro-vaccine mandates, and that's going to be lawyers, because they're going to be very, very busy uh, with uh, all these different mandates going down. Uh, Ian, there are a whole lot of sides, like Michael mentioned, a whole lot of sides of this, especially breaking down into different groups. You've worked with a lot of different people. Uh, what do we need to be thinking about as we're seeing some of these uh, fights begin to uh, loom on the horizon? Well, first of all, I want people to realize that this lawsuit that was uh, dismissed, it wasn't because it didn't have merits, it's because they didn't follow along with the right process and exhaust that. So I guess we're going to see what happens there at the Board of Public Health. I also want to say that according to the Denverite, there were almost 800 employees that have already gotten exemptions, so these exemptions kind of already exist. So I think that argument that there's no way around the mandate is kind of missing. Now, whether the construction workers, uh, whether that'll pass through to the contracts, I mean, we have standards that we hold contractors to. It seems pretty reasonable to me. But what I will say, you know, is as a person of color, I read that argument and they were saying that POCs don't want to get the vaccine because they're cautious about the government. I get that. But the science is clear. Whether we're talking about climate crisis, we're talking about these vaccines. I've gotten the vaccine. I want to encourage people to get the vaccine. It's very important. It's hit our communities harder than most. Uh, we have less access to health care often. We have less, we've had more air pollution, right? All of these compounding factors. And so I just really want to encourage them to go out there and do that. Well said. Bento, as we look to you, uh, we have uh, legal uh, fights here and there, but we're also seeing probably elected leaders trying to figure out where they can push it, where they can't. How do you think this is going to go moving forward? Yeah, you know, I, I will be very surprised if we don't see legislation in Colorado when lawmakers return to the Capitol in January dealing with vaccines. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see how that turns out. I've already heard some rumblings about that. Um, I think federally, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty, regulatory uncertainty right now, since we don't have the rule yet from the Biden administration um, requiring the private sector to mandate vaccines. And so um, I'll be curious, you know, how many, we already know that a lot of private sector companies are complying and requiring it. But as we've seen in recent um, reports, there's so much uncertainty for businesses right now with the pandemic, the Delta various variants, sorry, and um, supply chain issues, inflation. So how this all melds together, I think we'll be tracking. And we have, what, 100 state lawmakers. The last few years, I've covered issues related to vaccines, not COVID, but it was measles, mumps, and rubella for kindergartners. So I think we'll see a number of bills trying to address it. 
Patty, it seems just from what we've watched so far that the city of Denver is not uh, afraid of a big fight here. It doesn't seem like Mayor Michael Hancock is uh, looking for uh, a way to back down, and it sounds like he's going to have plenty to uh, to fight with as uh, now we have a new suit coming from these trade associations. Uh, am I reading that right? What do you think? Well, if you want to keep your city or your state safe, a vaccine mandate, if you can put it in, clearly with science, it is showing that it is helping. Uh, breakthrough cases have changed the statistics, so has the Delta variant. But there's no question that if you are vaccinated, you are, if you get COVID, it's less like, it's going to be less severe and you're less likely to get it. So I, it's interesting with Hancock because he was brave on that front, but then the forty, for, the four hundred dollar bonus if you got vaccinated, that proposal that then ran afoul of the people who got the exemptions. You know, the eight hundred people, most of them on religious grounds. Do they also get paid for being exempted? That was one of the kinds of fights you really don't need to get into when you would think people would want to be vaccinated for the greater good, not for four hundred dollars. And as we also saw, it didn't. A million didn't work when we tried that with the lottery. I mean, Walmart gift cards were more successful. So we will keep seeing fights and we will keep seeing more and more companies asking for people to be vaccinated as we head into winter and we look at stats that are not getting better. Well, speaking of Denver, the Denver City Council made two proclamations this week stating their adamant opposition to ballot initiatives 303 and 304. 303 would require the city to sweep homeless camps within three days instead of the seven days required by federal law. And 304 would lower the cap on aggregate sales and use tax rates. Councilman Robin Kanich said the ordinances would leave the city at risk of federal consequences. And there's a lot of levels to this one, um, but I guess it was a little surprising to me to see the Denver City Council come out uh, this vociferously about uh, issues on the ballot. Um, but that's kind of been the way this, this particular city council has run. Uh, were you surprised to see this, and do you think it will have an effect? Well, I, I think I'm not surprised to see the city council is especially against 303 and 304. It's unfortunate the number 303. I think you're going to get some people who are going to vote for it just because they're from the Mile High City and they're less informed. I mean, 303, look, I do service work with the unhoused. I don't think this gentleman, Flicker, who is, has run this, has ever come out and done the homeless service with this. I've never seen him there. Now, do people want safe outdoor campsites? Heck yeah, they do. And simply put, the two that we have right now isn't solving the problem. I would agree with Robin Kanich. I'm not sure how they could, you know, apply for these uh, to, to get response from the city within three days. You know, if it passes, I think, though, you know, they're going to have to figure that out. The nice thing is city council can make changes, right, because it's not a charter amendment. So, you know, obviously we're going to need to comply with the law. I don't know if we have enough lawyers uh, to put up with the amount of unhouseless camps that we have happening in the city. It's a scary thing. As far as opposing uh, um, 304, I mean, again, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's going to cut, I think, a read up to $80 million from the budget, right? That's money we got to come up with from somewhere. And so I can see people being against that. And I hear the positive arguments that we already have Tabor to decide if we want to tax ourselves or not. Benta, I guess uh, this also, I know you cover a lot of the, the statewide politics, but the politics of the Denver City Council are always uh, attractive just because they produce a lot of drama. Were you surprised to see their stance with these two proclamations this week? I wasn't necessarily surprised, but it does make me wonder, you know, would they overturn something if the voters did pass it in Denver? For instance, if, if voters in Denver do decide to cap the sales tax. Because I know from the, the state perspective, when, when we're covering the state legislature, lawmakers are reluctant to go in and kind of undo what voters decide. 
And I learned through redistricting, which I wasn't aware of this when we were looking at the congressional district that, that is Denver, you know, how blue that district is compared to any other district in the state. There's no conservative equivalent. It was something like a 60 point Democratic advantage based on the races they were using. So I'll be curious whether Democrats um, would actually support lowering sales taxes. It's one thing not to vote to increase taxes. Um, as for the housing issue, you, we've seen in, that Denver residents do want to address it, the in, increasing sales taxes for that purposes. So um, I, I guess I don't know how influential the city council will be with their strong opposition or if there's just a larger sentiment as well among voters in Denver driving that. Uh, Patty, you're one of our highest profile Denver voters that we have on a regular <laughs> basis. Uh, was uh, the, the city council proclamations influential to you? No, but that's not a big surprise. And I don't think they'll necessarily be influential with voters. What we're going to see is, will there be smart campaigns? Will residents have time to actually figure out? Because these are just two of the 13 Denver measures they're going to be voting on. And some of them are very confusing. I think 303 is tricky just because you don't really understand. You want people to be responsive when they're complaints, but you also want to be sure that more safe camping sites can be set up. And this would also put a lid on that, too. So you really have to look very closely at that measure. And the sales tax one is pretty easy. Obviously, that's one city council and Mayor Hancock agreed on. He talked about it when he was announcing his budget proposal that this would really cripple the city. And Denver in general always feels pretty generous about making sure there is money in the pot to fund the city. So I don't see that being a big challenge. But city council members, I don't know how much voters pay attention to what they say. <laughs> we pay attention to you here, if it's going to make you feel any better to our Denver city council members who are watching. But, uh, Michael, as we turn to you, uh, you know, it's um, as, as we see these different issues go through the city council, uh, it reminds me that uh, there are a lot of tax uh, increases that go through Denver really easily. The tax, usually Denver uh, voters, uh, they're really generous, that kind of thing. But I'm wondering if maybe, maybe not through 304, but maybe they're, they're finding a limit. Maybe not. But what do you think? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you're right. There is, uh, you know, normally Denver voters go down, yes, 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 on every, uh, you know, referred measure to them from city council, and most of them are tax or bond increases. You have several on the ballot this year, too. And so uh, I don't know if that's going to stop anytime soon, but there has to be a discussion about competition. Um, you know, if you're that much higher on sales tax, on other taxes as other areas, do businesses leave? Do families not want to be there? Uh, and so I think that discussion has to happen, and maybe this is the beginning of it. I don't know if this passes. I think it's tough, given the fact that. Uh, you know, as we've said, Denver normally uh, is for more taxes instead of less. But um, this would cap, it would drop, and then cap uh, the sales tax. And so we'll see. I think that's a, that's a tough one. And the other one, I actually think the 303 will pass. Um, and I think uh, partially uh, for two reasons. One is that there is this camping issue uh, across the the city, and and people want something done about it. And um, you know, giving these the the other part of it is those four designated areas that have restrooms, lighting, running water. Um, you know, homelessness is a very tough issue, and this is not going to fix this at all, but it will uh, do something to, to bring some order to the camping issue. And so I, I definitely think that one will pass. 
All six Democratic members of Colorado's congressional delegation signed a letter to the EPA last week urging for stricter rules on methane emissions, a byproduct of oil and gas production. The letter includes a variety of provisions that apply to oil and gas wells, including abandoned orphan wells, which there are over 200 in, just here in Colorado. Uh, Benta, you reported on this. Uh, give us the details we think that we need to know about, uh, and I don't even know if this was a, a big step for the Democratic congressional delegation, but uh, it seems like a, a, a pretty big letter and they wanted to cover a whole lot of issues. Yeah, that's right. And I think one thing to note is it may impact other states more than Colorado if this rule from the EPA went through. Because if you recall, in 2014, Colorado was the first state in the country to, to regulate methane. Um, and Colorado adopted rules that cap um, emissions and requires companies to check and repair for leaks. And so uh, part of this letter was really in, in, you know, trying to get what's happening in Colorado to happen in other parts of the country. I, I talked to the oil and gas um, associations, and they said that they didn't want a top-down approach. And interestingly, when Colorado did pass the methane um, restrictions, that it, it was very bipartisan, and the industry did come together with the environmental community. We don't always see that on regulations. So um, I don't know how unique it is for all of the Democratic members of Congress to put a letter like this together. But from some of the people I talked to, says it does put pressure on the EPA when you have a state like Colorado and have at least a good chunk of the congressional delegation speaking with one voice on something. Patty, do you think this letter will be influential with the EPA? About as influential as the Denver City Council people talking against those ordinances. I think it's good that they do it and they took position, this position. Um, certainly Colorado has been a leader on some of that methane um, issue when Hickenlooper was governor. But there are so many environmental issues out there right now, and this is a critical one. You get to the orphaned wells, and there are others that definitely need to be paid attention to. The deaths in Firestone, people will not forget that. And so those will keep coming back. But does the national do this, the national media pay attention to that? They've got problems in other states, too. So I don't think this will change things, but I think Colorado is going to keep pushing for more control, for more oversight, and we need it. Michael, it seems that, you know, this may or may not make an impact in the EPA in D.C., but it might make a bigger impact in Colorado politics of saying, you know, Democrats going out on this point uh, uh, really against a lot of different points about oil and gas production. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a theme that's been happening more uh, recently from uh, not only these legislators, but other ones in the state. Um, but I, I do think, you know, it is important to note that Colorado has this in place and has for a while now. And Governor Hickenlooper talked about it every chance he could uh, for the last few years. But, um, you know, I was, I was looking at, at the different statements from different people. And, and Dan Haley, you know, the president of COGA, just talked about the dangers of a federal approach and saying that every state, every basin faces different challenges. And so I think, you know, this one size fits all the federal government has to deal with this might not be the best approach, that there are other ways uh, for states to, to deal with it on their own. Um, and, and so we'll see if that happens or if the EPA steps in and does something. Ian, wrap it up for us. Well, you know, I work on these kind of issues with my work with Green Latinos. I can tell you I'm excited to see them send this to the EPA. I want people to know that there's actually going to be a rulemaking process where they personally can participate. They can, they can go to these meetings. They can voice their concerns. You know, as far as a federal approach goes, I think we do need it. The climate crisis is growing. And to be quite honest, the Colorado rules aren't even the strongest they could be. They were the first. I want to be in a race to the best. And I think that there's huge opportunity for us to get better rules. And, you know, sometimes you have to have a, a different government step in, right? There 
are certainly water civil rights concerns that are happening in New Mexico, in the basins in Texas. They're not getting that representation or their protection from their government. I think that is the place for the federal government. I'll say, you know, in regards to the senators in particular, you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill has well capping in it, right? We know that's super important. The Build Back Better agenda also extends upon this. You know, for our work with Green Latinos, we see it kind of as rice and beans. We want them both. <laughs> um, and we want to see action on these issues immediately. Let's get through a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Is every single street in Denver under construction right now? I think it's great that we're putting our taxes towards something, but I'd love to see one finished. And speaking of finished, DIA right now flew out this past weekend. Wow, that's a mess. Michael. Yeah, so a story came out this week uh, saying that last year uh, the state spent $89 million uh, with a company called Curative to, to test asymptomatic people uh, in nursing homes. It wasn't designed to do that. Uh, it, it failed. It didn't work. Uh, and so there's uh, a legislator who's trying to call for an audit of this to see what happened. Why did they get the contract? Why was it being used this way? And so I think we need to so it's, you know, oversee some of this money that was spent uh, during COVID time. Ian. My disgrace of the week has to do with the Denver City Council and the mayor and our budget, which is wildly out of line with what I think the voters are wanting. We see underfunding in housing. We continue to have a gap widening on what we're supposed to spend on climate. And public safety got a 7.2% increase. And so I'm disappointed the mayor would put this forward, given the marches, given people's work. And I would also say I'm disappointed that council isn't being more bold in suggesting changes to, to adapt for those needs. Ben, do we go to you for your disgrace of the week? Sure. Um, a state audit was recently released that showed um, a Colorado program that was aimed at giving money to businesses, small businesses hard hit by the pandemic. I think restaurants failed to distribute 60% of those funds because Colorado couldn't find companies that were eligible to receive the funds. 60%. That's a, that's a snafu. Uh, time to say something nice about somebody, the hardest part of the show. Patty? Um, all of Denver's artists can rejoice that one really just did well. Jordan Castile, if you followed her, she had a, her first solo was at the Denver Art Museum. Just won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Michael? Uh, I want to say something nice about candidates that are running for local office. They don't get a lot of attention. Uh, but ballots go out in seven days. They're out knocking doors, going to forums, doing all this stuff. And so I think the least we could do is, is vote in those elections this year. And those are the candidates that actually make a difference. If you want to, you care what's happening on your street, it's your city council candidates. Ian? I want to shout out Metro State University, my alma mater. They're celebrating homecoming this weekend, and that's why I'm wearing this. And just thank the Alumni Association. They're giving me an alumni award tomorrow. Well-deserved, and congratulations on that award. Benson, we go to you to say something nice. Well, I will shout out the congressional redistricting commissioners because you had 12 just regular Coloradans who took time out of their lives and their families' lives and their work schedules and just spent countless hours with this unenviable task. And so I think it's commendable that they gave so much of their time to trying to help the state. Here, here, and I want to give a shout out. If you missed it earlier tonight, we just kicked off our two seasons, one of Generation Grit, a great new youth empowerment show at 7 o'clock. And at 7.30, we just kicked off our season of Both Sides of the Story. Uh, you'll definitely want to catch these debates. They're just fantastic. Uh, next week, you'll see uh, a great debate featuring our high school students from George Washington and Denver East and two judges from this table, uh, Mr. Fields and Mr. Tafoya, along with me with a, a really great debate. So be sure to check that out every Friday 
Friday, 7 and 7.30 from now until Christmas. So some really great shows headed your way. Thanks to members just like you. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. We'll